The Tom Woods Show, episode 1116. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you are looking to add cryptocurrency to your retirement account, then BitTrust IRA will help you seamlessly and securely do it. Their team handles the entire process to make it easy. And you can download your free copy of their Cryptocurrency IRA Investor's Guide at bittrustira.com slash woods. That's B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash woods. Or give them a call to learn more, 855-642-8800. That's 855-642-8800. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. We're having a debate today without a formal resolution, unlike our other debates, but it's about MMT, modern monetary theory. And in fact, I will let the protagonist here, Dylan Moore, who runs the Volitional Science Network YouTube channel, linked at tomwoods.com slash 1116. I'll let him do that. But uh, he's going to be facing off against Bob Murphy, whom you know as my co-host on the Contra Krugman podcast. Of course, he runs consultingbyrpm.com. He holds a PhD in economics from NYU, author of numerous books, frequent guest on this program. But Bob and I did a program on MMT, on Contra Krugman, the sister podcast of this show, not too long ago. And Dylan listened to it and thought he might be able to add something to our understanding, help flesh the ideas out a little bit better. And he's doing this from the point of view of an advocate of MMT. So the... As I say, there's no formal resolution here, but given that Dylan is going to be arguing in favor of MMT, I'm going to take him as being arguing in the affirmative and Bob as arguing in the negative, and it's customary in these debates for the person arguing in the affirmative to go first. So what we'll do is what we've done in the past, and that is we're going to have opening statements, we're going to have rebuttals, we'll have questions for either side both from each other and from me, and then we'll wrap up. So that's all I have to say to set the stage here. I will just add that MMT is all over the place now. It's being discussed quite a bit. Uh, a lot of its advocates have become uh, very prominent, so it seems like an opportune moment to get to know it better and to debate it. So having said that, our two debaters are here, and I will turn things over right now to Dylan Moore, who will speak for anywhere between five and 10 minutes. Dylan, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. I think it's an honor to come on your show. I have a lot of respect for both of you guys. And uh, before I get started talking about MMT, I wanted to point out that I actually consider myself an ANCAP or anarcho-capitalist. Um, I understand that the, the state has a monopoly on violence and that anything that it does is used to that tool, and that's fundamentally unethical, and that because it uses this as this tool, um, ultimately, the public sector can never utilize resources uh, as efficiently as the private sector. I'm, I'm totally there, and I totally agree with that. And um, I come from an Austrian background myself, and when, when I came across it, um, I found that the arguments were very self-evident that resources are obviously more important than whatever imaginary money unit that we're using. And um, the, it, it, does, it simply doesn't make any sense for the government to say, okay, I'm just going to print a bunch of money, therefore we're all richer, if that didn't affect the resources somehow. Um, and in addition to that, I want to say, uh, 
I understand that MMT sounds like a bunch of socialist garbage. It, it just does. And when I first stumbled across it, that was my instant reaction. I'm like, what is this? This is socialist crap. Um, and luckily I had someone who was patient enough to, to sit down with me. It's, it's the guy that I'm, I'm usually talking to on my, on my channel. And what I realized is that because MMT sounds like socialist garbage, it attracts a lot of socialists. And so when you look up MMT on the internet, generally what you're finding isn't necessarily the MMT viewpoint. It's the leftist agenda of the MMT viewpoint. So what I've been attempting to do with my channel or specifically this, this series of my channel is um, give the opportunity to try to subtract out the socialist garbage from the MMT inf uh, media and information out there on the internet. So getting into the MMT now, uh, one of the things that while I was really into Austrian economics that, that never clicked for me was the actual nature of money. Because I remember hearing a story, something like this, which is that uh, the money that we have now, and I'm referring specifically to the U.S. government and, and living in the United States, <clears throat> the money that we have now is uh, worthless because it's not backed by anything, and it's counterfeit because the United States government gave over its money printing power to this uh, private institution called the Federal Reserve. And I used to repeat this to people, but fundamentally, I valued the dollar bills in my hand, and everybody else around me valued the dollar bills in my hand, and I wasn't willing to put my money where my mouth was and just throw it away because I really felt it was worthless. And the MMT explanation to this, I think, explains it brilliantly that the reason that money is valuable, and it doesn't matter what it's made out of, whether it's a commodity or an electronic digit or a piece of paper or whatever, the reason that it's valuable is because the government demands it in taxes. And what the money is backed by, in quotes, is the fact that if you don't pay your taxes with it, the government comes, kicks down your door, steals your property, drains your bank account, and uh, throws you in prison. So the backing is kind of the temporary remittance from state violence. And the story that I heard from the Austrian viewpoint is that money, fundamentally, was used by the private sector and then, you know, however many thousands of years ago. And then the king came along with all his soldiers, took the money, taxed it, and then used that to, to you know, feed his soldiers and go to war and whatever else. The MMT explanation, this is opposite of the case. And the first thing that the king does, the ruler, the chieftain, whoever's in the, in the vicinity, Set, demands a tax in some arbitrary token. Again, it doesn't matter what it's made out of and says, you owe me taxes in this token and only I can create it. And then everyone in the private sector looks at each other and they says, well, great. Well, great. Where do I, where do I get this token? And the king says, oh, well, you can work for me and I'll give it to you and then you could pay your tax. And this is diabolically brilliant because instead of the king now having to go bust down doors to steal the resources that he needs, people will bring the resources to him, in quotes, voluntarily, in exchange for these stupid tokens that he made out of nowhere with his face on it, right? So 
what this means is that the king has to spend the money into existence first before people can get taxed. The causality is backwards. And, th and this is why MMT sounds so bizarre, because households don't work this way. I can't spend the money before I earn it. I mean, well, I guess I can't with a credit card, but you get my point. Um, governments have to work that way. They have to introduce money into the system because they're the monopoly issuer of money before they can tax it back. So what this means is that money in the system is what has been spent into, into the private sector minus what has been taxed out. And so this is, this is the, the thing that really tripped me when I first really understood MMT is that the government debt is the private sector money. And it has to be because the government is the monopoly issuer of money and there's no other place for it to come from. So what this further leads to is that because in a, in a modern economy where we're actually using money, and if, if we understand that the government is the monopoly issuer, whether, whether they've got a treasury and a central bank and, and whatever bureaucracy stuff that they have going on in between, and you know there's always 7,000 layers of bureaucracy mucking stuff up, in the end, the government prints money out of nothing and then demands it in taxes. So what this means is that if the private sector doesn't have access to this money that the government's printed, they can't participate in the economy because there's, there's simply no money to do it with. So when the government runs a surplus, I, this, this sounds utterly bizarre. When a government runs a surplus, that means they're taxing more money than they're spending into existence. So they're removing money out of the private sector. This is what causes the economic crashes. I understand this sounds like heresy. Government surplus causes the economic crash. But when you understand that government debt is the private sector net savings, does it, does it make sense to say they're opposite of each other? Government debt is opposite from private debt. Government debt is the private net sector, uh, pr net private sector savings. So the historical evidence actually backs this up. There have been seven and I'm, I'm, again, I'm looking specifically at the United States. There have been seven federal government surpluses in the history of the United States. Six out of those seven were immediately followed by a straight-out depression, and one out of those seven was followed by a recession, which is what we had in, in 2008. And if you look at the theory of MMT, it, it perfectly explains why this is the case, because it's simply removing money out of the system, and the private sector simply has nothing to work with. So the, the reason that I wanted to bring this up and, and give Austrians a chance to mull this over, because I was one of them, is because if this is true, and I think it is, the Austrian solutions that they offer for the economy, uh, some of which include, hey, we can't have this massive national debt, we got to get control of the, the budget, um, we, ha we seriously have to look at things like austerity, will actually cause the economic crashes they're hoping to avoid. Okay, and... Does that conclude your statement? That concludes my statement. All right. Very good. So, Bob, it is now all eyes are on you. Well, let's just say all ears are on you right now. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Well, uh, like Dylan, I want to th thank Tom for providing this forum. Uh, I don't want to go so far as to say I respect Tom, but I, I think he's an all right guy. And uh, <laughs> so let me... Uh, <laughs> Let me focus. So I was jotting down notes, of course, and I believe the structure of this debate will have a, a short rebuttal period to respond directly to the other person's opening statement. So let me hold back my specific responses to uh, his opening and let me just give some more uh, general thoughts on MMT. 
So let me, I'll start with sort of the, the broad big picture view and then I'll, I'll home in on some specifics. So I, the analogy I want to use, and I use this in my debate with Warren Mosler and I'll use it again here to try to capture what I think is both correct and then irrelevant or the non sequitur in the MMT project. Because their, their big thing is to say, uh, you know, and I've encountered this both with the, the direct people I was debating and in terms of people on the internet commenting, like, for example, on the debate that I had with Warren Mosler, to say something along the lines of, look, at, we're, we're just explaining how the modern monetary system works. And guys like Murphy, they're just whining that they don't like it. But, hey, we're scientists here or, you know, we're being objective and neutral. This is how the world works. And let's get used to it. You got to you know, have your theories tailored to how it works, not to some throwback to how things may have worked before World War One when countries were on the gold standard. This is the modern thing. So and they're saying things along the lines of all this talk about, you know, oh, gee, the budget deficit's so big. That's all irrelevant now. That's a big non sequitur because the MMT proponent continues a sovereign government that issues its own currency cannot go bankrupt. It cannot become insolvent. They can always just print more money. There might be other consequences. Don't get us wrong. But this focus on budgets, that's like a household thinking or that at best is like old gold standard thinking when the countries you know, had to redeem their currency in gold. Nowadays, under fiat money, sovereign governments that haven't foolishly joined like the eurozone or something, but where your independent government has its own currency that it issues they are free from such constraints. And so we got to have terminology and a, a framework that acknowledges that, right? So they're saying it's, it's not a panacea, but let's at least get up to speed here with how the world works nowadays, right? So that's where they're coming from. And, you know, that, that's fine insofar as it goes, but then they seem to think that there's a lot more uh, punch packed into that, that a lot of the policy conclusions that a typical economist or let alone an, an Austrian in terms of, oh, gee, you know, it's wasting resources if the government spends or we have to balance the budget because otherwise we're going to have a debt crisis. You know, all that worry and all the, the focus on so-called austerity, they're going to say, and, and I'm glad that, that Dylan was, was saying this as well because I didn't want to be arguing at cross purposes. They will say that not only is that irrelevant, but in fact, it's arguably harmful. Okay, so given that, let me just make a simple analogy to try to capture both the merit in that and then to show why really that's a big non sequitur. So imagine you've got a husband and wife and they're stressing over the family budget and they're looking at the kitchen table and they're, oh, gee, man, we got these bills and the kids have school. Oh, man. And the car needs to get repaired and the furnace just went out. Your job, I suppose I could take up another shift at the, at the diner. Oh, and they're just re- and then the husband has an epiphany. He says, wait a minute. We're sitting here thinking that we have to make our income at least as big as our expenses, but no, we don't. Why would that? That's old school thinking. That's that's household thinking. Really, I could just put on a ski mask and go down to the Seven uh, Eleven, take out my shotgun and rob the guy. Why do you know? So I could I could do now. Don't get me wrong, he says, because he sees his wife, you know, snapping her head back in alarm. Don't get me wrong. There would be consequences if I do that too much. Eventually, I'm going to go to prison, and that's a bad outcome. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's free and costless for me to go around holding up convenience stores at gunpoint. All I'm saying is let's acknowledge reality. Let's stop pretending that we have to, quote, make our budget balance. No, we don't. The, I can go ahead and get more dollars if, if what we need is more dollars. Okay, so in that kind of a context, can we all agree that yes, even though technically the husband isn't wrong in what he just pointed out, that he did come up with a way to bring in more dollars besides earning more income or to you know go borrow more, 
that that really doesn't change the fundamental economic problem that the household faces and that it would be very dangerous if they started thinking he had come up with some solution to their financial troubles, right? So if, you, if you're following me there, then I want to say to me, that's basically my reaction when I hear MMT proponents talking that yes, there are certain things that economists or other pundits say when they're talking about government finances that makes it sound like they literally cannot get out of a debt crisis unless they cut their spending when in fact, no, they have the option of resorting to the printing press. But to me, that's, that's not really a, a, a solution that that's just going to cause other problems that are far worse than what the original problem was. And moreover, it's not really actually solving the economic problem. All it's doing is transferring to someone else. Just as in the household case, at best, if you go around holding up convenience stores, it's not really that you've evaded the problem of economic scarcity. It's just you've transferred resources from someone else against their will. Okay, so likewise with governments, yes, it is true that the United States government never needs to default on its outstanding treasury obligations. The U.S. government can always just create more dollars out of thin air in order to pay off people who turn in their treasuries and say, hey, you said you owed me $1,000, pay up. The U.S. government doesn't even need to resort to taxation. It doesn't need to cut spending. It can just create more dollars. But is that really something that Austrians weren't aware of? I mean, haven't Austrians and others flipped out since Nixon went off the gold standard? Right? And you say, why? Well, that's precisely why, because they said there's a danger of inflation because now the last vestiges of that constraint on printing new dollars has been removed. So, I, you know, I, I don't think this is some huge revelation. In fact, if you, if you go listen to standard lectures like from Mises University, the economists there will at some point, I'm sure, say, hey, there's only uh, a few ways government can get revenue. They can either tax, they can borrow, or they can resort to the printing press. Right? This is standard stuff. It's not like we were forced into saying that as a defensive position in light of the MMT advance upon our, our, you know, our front lines. This is standard stuff that free market economists and Austrians in particular say. So this isn't some huge revelation that governments can print money in order to pay their bills. That's Again, that's why we were so alarmed at governments going off gold, because now we knew they would have the temptation to resort to such inflationary finance. So to continue along this line, um, I don't think I'm attacking a straw man here when I try to say that the MMT proponents make it sound as if they're saying something profound when really it's quite trivial. So for example, uh, recently on Contra Krugman, Tom and I went through MMT and we were drawing on an article discussing MMT in a positive light. So this is going to, you know, taking it from people who believe in it, think it's important and there was an economics graduate student they quoted, and the article was quoting the, the student approvingly, saying, hey, this, this is an example for you, the reader, to see how profound this is and why MMT is important. And the student said, Macy's can't run out of Macy's gift certificates. Right? So making an analogy with the U.S. government can't run out of dollars, saying Macy's can't run out of Macy's gift certificates. And I want to say, yeah, that's true. And so what? Does that mean, therefore, Macy's is never in trouble because they can always just keep issuing more gift certificates? No, that, that has no impact on anything. If, if the shareholders of Macy's are worried about the company's profitability and someone says, hey, but you know, guys, wh why are you fretting? We can't run out of Macy's gift certificates. They would look at them like, what are you talking about? That's completely irrelevant. So by the same token, if people are warning about, oh, gee, a U.S. debt crisis might be imminent because look at how much the Obama administration and now the Trump administration is running up the debt and someone points out, but hey, we can always have the Fed create more dollars that is a big non sequitur. That doesn't give me any information.
and the, the fundamental reason is that when you know, th- think through why, why is that, you know, wh- why is it that creating new dollars doesn't do anything, doesn't, doesn't help anything. It's because that's simply another mechanism for transferring purchasing power away from existing dollar holders. Right. So if you agree that the U.S. government can't raise taxes more, it's spending too much, that its spending is outstripping its ability to raise revenue through taxation. And if it tried to borrow more, the debt markets would would default and say, no, 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 we were cutting you off. Then printing more dollars doesn't solve that. That also would make debt markets cut them off. The last thing I'll say here for this opening remark is uh, this idea that the government, that the people value money because of taxation. Okay, number one, I don't think that's true historically. And I know anthropologists differ on this, but the Austrians can certainly tell a story where that money arises in the free market. Also, Dylan says he's an anarcho-capitalist, so is he saying if he got his way and governments around the world disbanded that we, humans would no longer have money? It, that sounds like an implication, so in which case I guess his anarcho-capitalism would lead to the collapse of civilization, yet I don't think he believes that. Uh, and finally, there are plenty of people who use dollars who don't have to pay taxes, Right, the, the when Dylan was younger, he wasn't holding dollars in his hands and valuing them because he thought, "Oh, next April I have to turn them in." No, you value money because of its purchasing power. This is standard stuff. All right, I'll stop there. All right, thank you, Bob. Okay, so at this point, uh, Dylan will get a few minutes to respond to Bob's statement. I only get three minutes to respond to all that. That was a lot. I know you can <laughs> carry it on in the journals, as they say, or on the blogs. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the point where I'd like to start is uh, the analogy of the liquor store. And um, I want to say that the analogy isn't an accurate reflection of the situation. Because if we look at the, the guy going, hey, I don't have any money, I'm going to go to the liquor store and steal it, or as opposed to getting another job and earning it there. Well, the question I would have is, well, where did the liquor store and the other job get the money in the first place? If the government is the sole issuer of money, it's got the monopoly, it's got all the guns, and uh, there's counterfeiting laws where you can't make money or else the government throws you in jail. Where else is money supposed to come from if the government doesn't print it? So, so there's, there's a fundamental category difference between the government and everybody else. For example, um, Bob brought up Macy's. Uh, you know, if, if Macy's is going to print cards in order to, to get themselves out of out of uh, whatever problem they got themselves in. Well, M- Macy's can't force me to use the card. Macy's, Macy's can't demand the card in taxes. And uh, this is the fundamental difference. And um, the revelation, uh, you know, I, I understand that, you know, from the Austrian viewpoint, they say, hey, the government's printing money and that's bad. Well, the revelation isn't that I'm coming saying, hey, the government can print money and that we can just pay for everything. The revelation that I'm trying to bring is that without the government printing money, there isn't any. Sans the fact we're in Ancapistan. I want to say something about that, too. Um, so in order for there to, to be a liquor store to rob, in order for there to have a job to go to to earn money, that money has to have been created in the first place and the government is the only place to create it. As of now. So now when we're talking about um, anarcho-capitalism and say, okay, well, at some point in the future, I prefer no government. And uh, as Bob said, it's like, well, if you're saying uh, money is the only, only comes from the government, well, then if there's no government, are you saying there shouldn't be any money? Well, no. 
what I'm saying is up until now, money has only come from the government. And I, uh, obviously we're, we're disagreeing here about the anthropological evidence, but um, even if there wasn't money, from, there was money from the private sector once upon a time, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, although I think cryptocurrencies are, are making an attempt at attacking that, although there's there's no clear understanding of what's going on there yet. Um, but I believe there is a private way of making money of creating a currency. However, in order for us to do that properly, we're going to have to understand how the state has done it. And in addition to that, because um, none of us are waking up in, in Ancapistan tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now, normally when we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of centuries. Um, nobody's going to live to see it. So all the decisions we ever are going to make are in the statist realm. So we need to understand What's going on within the state? How am I doing on time? Well, uh, you know what? In the spirit of wanting to disseminate information and opinion, I say take a couple more minutes. Thank you. See, if I said that to Bob, they'd say you're biased toward Bob. I'm going to try to be biased toward you, if anything. I appreciate that, Tom. You're a swell guy. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. And then um, when it comes to uh, um, Bob brought up about the government, uh, it can it can resort to uh, taxes, it could resort to borrowing or it could resort to the printing press in order to pay for its bills. I'm saying there's nothing else other than the printing press. The, the, the private sector can never lend the government money. The government never has or doesn't have money. All it is is a, a scorekeeper for money. So when we have these things called bonds, it's not like the government needs to borrow more bonds or needs to borrow, get more taxes in order to pay the interest on these bonds, all they do is they type up a number in a bank account. Now, I think it's a horrible idea. I agree that that is a method of transferring wealth from one group of people to another. And in fact, Nima, my, my friend, he's pointed out, and I agree with this, that um, risk-free federal bonds are simply a basic income for the rich. That if you have enough money to buy these bonds and get your risk-free one or two percent or whatever it is, well, good for you. Um, so, again, I, I point this back to the, the nature of money is fundamentally different from the Austrian description. And I'm not saying that the private sector can't do it. I'm saying it's never done it. And if it wants to figure out how, it better learn how the state has been doing it. There. All right, Bob, why don't you take about five-ish minutes and uh, give us your own response? Okay, so I think Dylan made a big concession there when he agreed, and I, I mean, I think I backed him into a corner. So to his credit, you know, he's he's trying to say, and I understand his position, that look, at I am a, let's say, an Austro-Libertarian on many issues. It's just I think they have this gaping blind spot when it comes to uh, MMT and its contributions and so if, if if one is still going to say, I, I pine for a world, maybe it's going to come next Tuesday, maybe it's not going to come forever, but it would be better if humans lived in a voluntary world where we didn't have coercive political institutions. Well, it would be awkward if that meant there'd be no money, right? So he, he admits that the market can produce money. He's just saying he doesn't think it's done so yet. I would take a different view of history. I would say gold and silver clearly were money. And that historically what happened is the sovereign governments uh, linked their own uh, domestic currencies like the French franc or Italian lira or the U.S. dollar to specific weights of gold and silver. And that's how people began accepting those things in commerce. And only over time did they then sever the link between the, the paper 
certificates issued by the governments and the the precious metals. Okay, but you know what? That doesn't even matter. Even if you think, no, historically, it's an open question and it's kind of murky back in the day what happened with Incan society or what have you. And, I, and, and that's I have gotten into arguments with anthropologists on this stuff. Doesn't matter that Dylan, at least, is for the purpose of this debate, is conceding that at some point in the future, if we didn't have governments using force to issue currency, the private sector could do it. And so I'm going to say, all right, well, in that world, then how would we explain the purchasing power of money? It can't be because, oh, thank goodness, there's somebody in society who's willing to point guns at people and say, you better give me some of that thing once a year or else we're going to kill you or throw you in a cage. So that's the sort of perverse implication that comes out of listening to the standard MMT people talk. It's that, thank goodness, there's at least somebody in society who's pointing guns at people and making them pay us this stuff. Otherwise, money wouldn't work. Okay, and so he's admitting that wouldn't happen. So be, it might sound like I'm merely complaining and wringing my hands over the immorality of it. And that's certainly a factor. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is, no, how would, would economists be able to explain the purchasing power of money in that world? Yes, they would. And they would use the standard tools that Ludwig von Mises and other economists developed when it came to explaining money in the framework of subjective value theory. So I'm not going to go into that now. But my point is. The fact that right now most government or most money is issued by governments that rely on taxation, that's just an interesting datum in order to incorporate into the into the explanation. But it's not that you, you that that fact is critical in order to explain why do people hold money? There are plenty of people right now who hold U.S. dollars in their cash balances who aren't U.S. citizens, who don't pay U.S. taxes. There are plenty of Americans who don't pay income tax, for example. They're just, they don't they don't qualify. They don't make enough income. And yet they hold dollars. And so you can say you can if you want, you can say, well, it's only because ultimately there's this residual that there are some people that need to pay the U.S. federal government every year. And so they provide the base. But by the same token, I could say, well, there are some people that really want those dollars to buy TVs from Best Buy. And that's the base. Right. And there's there's really no reason to prefer one over the other in terms of the, the argument. So uh, another point. Look at the hyperinflations throughout history, the interwar Germany, Zimbabwe. Okay, those things, it's not because those countries foolishly abolished taxation. The Zimbabwean government still had taxes, and yet its currency collapsed. All right, so this notion that it's taxation that fundamentally undergirds and pins up the value of a currency, I just think is is erroneous. Like You can see it's wrong historically. It's been disproven. And then theoretically, you can explain the purchasing power of money using other techniques. Okay, so let me spend, I got about a minute left here. Let me walk through why is it wrong to think that we need the government to spend money into existence. And gosh, imagine if the government ran a surplus, that would be horrible because that would be siphoning net wealth out of the hands of the private sector. Okay, for one thing, it makes the nominal real mistake, right? If the government just gave everyone an extra $1,000, we would have more money in the private sector, but that wouldn't make us wealthier. That would just make prices in general tend to go up, right? And so that, so that should, right there should be a, a key that to the extent that you believe that proposition, the government needs to spend money in existence, that doesn't prove what the standard MMT proponent thinks it does. On the other hand, to say if the government runs a deficit, now the private sector is holding treasuries, therefore that's a net asset of the private sector, how is the government going to pay that back? They're going to point guns at you, tax it from you, and then give it right back. That's not an asset in any legitimate sense to say, good thing I'm owed money as the private sector that the government is going to take from us at gunpoint. That's not a legitimate asset. All right. Now we get to what some might call the fun part, where Dylan, I'll turn things over to you and you can ask Bob 
any question you want to ask him, and he will have, let's say, two to three minutes to respond. Man, I really wanted to respond to that, though. <laughs> well, at the end, you're certainly free in your okay. final statement to say anything you like. Okay, hold on. Let's see here. So, going aside from where the money could come from, my biggest question is, and, and, and this is a part that, that I seem to be confused about, is when we're in a system where the government has monopoly on the money, there's no other place it could come from. If the government doesn't print it, where does it come from? That's the question. Okay. Well, yes, I agree that if the government doesn't issue more dollar bills, then there are no sources for more legal dollar bills. And I want to say- no, and, uh, Sorry, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying more dollar bills. I'm saying the first dollar bill. Where did any money at all come from from the beginning in terms of let's look specifically at the U.S. government? Okay, again, I would say that the people that came over to what we now call the United States were using gold and silver as money. I don't know the exact historical date of when what happened, but uh, at some point, the U.S. government or the authority were issuing things that came to be called dollars, and they were redeemable in gold and silver, and that's how people came to know what its purchasing power was. And then the first major uh, point of departure of that was under FDR when U.S. citizens could no longer redeem their dollars for gold. And then ultimately in 1971, that's when even central banks could no longer turn it in. So I, I, I think that that's, you know, that that's my answer as to how is it that right now so many people around the world are using dollars. All right. Well then now, Bob, it's, if you're finished, it's your turn to ask Dylan a question. Okay. So it seems that the MMT proponents put a lot of weight on the fact that the U.S. government right now is the only institution with the ability to, ins to issue new dollars and that we're supposed to derive a lot of uh, conclusions about the way the world works and this is supposed to have a huge impact on policy debates. So my question is, suppose the U.S. government were to say to Walmart, you also now have the ability to issue dollars in whatever quantity you want, and they, they will gain legal currency status, you know, that we're, we're allowing you to go ahead and issue dollars, or if you prefer to say, you tell us, Walmart, how many extra dollars you want us to print up and hand over to you, no strings attached for you to do with as you please, would you now say that, ah, if Walmart, it'd be good if they just spent that money into the economy, would that be a good thing, or at least would that change you know, our notion of, of budgets and surpluses and would we now, um, would you support that, I guess? Is, and then how, what are the ramifications of that proposed change if now Walmart can issue dollars as well? So I would say that would change the ramifications of everything. However, I don't support it. I think it would be a horrible idea. But essentially, the government already does this with banks. Banks have a sort of money extension power that is, I, I mean, to, to call a bank private is kind of really missing the point that they really have a license uh, from the government to extend that money. The difference is with a bank, if a bank extends a loan, let's say $100,000 or whatever, and they create that loan out of nothing, they just write it into your account and then they trade with other banks with this stupid ledger that they wrote in their account, um, that has to get paid back. So when I pay back the principal of my loan, it's because it's a financial instrument. Once the asset side meets the liability side, it cancels itself out and the money goes away. With the government, because it has this printing power and it, it doesn't need the money, it, it does not need to point guns and, uh, and, and take people's money in order to pay off bonds. It points guns and takes, people takes people's money in order to give the money value in the first place. And um, uh, to address 
real quick the issue of not everybody pays taxes. They kind of do. There's sales taxes. Um, businesses are charging taxes on people, and there's a lot more taxes than just income taxes. There's, I, I mean, personally, I, I think if you really did the math, about ninety percent of the money that we work with is just devoured in taxes between the local and and federal levels. But um, the reason that the bank issuing money is different from the government issuing money is the government doesn't actually need it back. That's why uh, the the emphasis on that the government debt is the private net sector savings. If you add up all the liabilities and if you add up all the assets, financial, not real, um, assets of the private sector, all the bank extended money is going to cancel out to zero. The government money is going to be what's left floating over, and that's the private net sector savings. So what I'm saying is if the government doesn't print it, there's no other place for it to come from. And I'm totally not saying that's a good idea. Like I said, I'm an ANCAP. I, th I think it's a horrible idea that we have this thing called the state and it bullies everybody around. But that's what it is. And if that's the case, if there's no money in the system, the system has no choice but to crash. All right. Now it's my turn to ask each of you a question, and I generally ask a pretty juicy one, but this time, I don't know, I guess I'm in a more ironic mood today, but let's start with my question for Dylan. Mm -hmm. This is really a question at seeking clarification. MMT proponents say that they are not claiming that there are no real constraints on government spending. They're claiming that some people think there are certain kind of constraints that don't actually exist. But there are other kinds of constraints. So in other words, the government can't just spend infinitely or print its way out of problems or always be safe from inflation or whatever. What are the real constraints on the level of government spending, according to MMT? Well, uh, I, I want to start this by I remember from Bob's debate with uh, Warren Mosler that uh, he, he gives this example of the, the bank CEO that uh, wastes away all its employees' um, pensions. And then when he gets caught, it, it, his response is, well, it's simply a policy decision to fix all this. So what's your constraint? And uh, technically, that's true. The government could come and say, you know what, you screwed this all up, but we don't care. We'll just print the money and get and give it to you. So the in, in terms of the constraint that someone has with a gun, they can shoot anybody they want. Um, what I'm saying and what I feel the MMT view is, uh, my, I, I think my MMT view is a little bit different from most of the rest of the MMT views out there, is that the when we talk about constraint, th th there's kind of two versions of it. There's the constraint of what can Congress actually do, uh, uh, like robbing the liquor stores. All they do is rob liquor stores. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only thing they do. All they do is point guns and, and move resources around. I completely agree. However, again, because of the monopoly, we have to have that money. And so so there's the constraint of whatever Congress could do is whatever cocaine, crazy addicts, crazy farce of an idea that they can come up with. Yes. But in terms of having a functioning economy, what the constraints are on that is the private sector needs a certain amount of net savings to operate. And there's two ways to do that. There's more, but there's two, there's two main ones, which is you can increase spending and that's the leftist MMT view. They jump up and down and say, oh, we, we need, now we need to have socialized health care. We got to have free education for everybody. And we, uh, you know, uh, universal basic income, blah, 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 whatever. They, they think they found their magic money tree. Um, 
And my response to that is just because you can afford it doesn't mean you should buy it. And the other way to increase the deficit, which is essentially increasing the money for the private sector, you can also lower the taxes. And that's where I'm coming from, where it's like, okay, we got the system. I don't necessarily like it, but while I'm in the system that I don't like, I don't want economic Armageddon to happen. And I think the best way for that to occur is to lower the taxes and and let the private sector get back to its job. All right, Bob, now my question for you. I, I was reading some critics of yours who are critical of what you've had to say about MMT. And one of their criticisms, they have many, but one of them is Murphy keeps conceding everything. He keeps saying we're right. He keeps saying, well, this is technically true and that's technically true. So what's the deal? If he's going to concede the whole thing, then where's his opposition? That's part of the question. And then the other part of the question, which I think is somewhat related because it just has to do with the overall understanding of what MMT is, people will say, look, MMT is purely descriptive. It's just saying this is how fiat money operates. So no wonder Murphy says, well, I agree that, of course, this is correct. Because that's all we're trying to do here. We're just saying that if you have a fiat money system, this is how it works. So if that's if that's what this is all about, Murphy, then explain yourself. Sure, and it, it, I agree. It, it is kind of frustrating, and I and I will admit that in Warren Mo, the debate I had with Warren Mosler, when I made the analogy of the household, you know, scratching their head and thinking about robbing liquor stores, when he then proceeded to his own analogy to illustrate his perspective. He said something along, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, yeah, imagine if I uh, gave out tickets in this room and I demanded that you perform you know, good, valuable services for me for you to get the tickets, and you'd say, why would I do that? But then I inform you that there's a guy standing outside the auditorium with a gun, and if you don't show him a ticket on your way out, he's going to kill you. right? And so, I mean, it, it, it's not that there was some huge qualitative difference between our two scenarios. And so <laughs> it's... I guess the, the, so we, we, what I say, yes, I agree with them insofar as they are describing the modern world. What I mean is I'm agreeing that the U.S. government legally, the way the world works right now, it can create new dollars. And so there's no reason the U.S. government ever needs to say to bondholders, oh, geez, sorry, we know that you lent us money and we promised that we'd give you $1,000 back on this date and we just don't have it because if we tried to raise taxes, there'd be a revolt. We don't want to do that. So the easier options for us to default I agree. The U.S. government does, never needs to do that. It can always just have the Fed create more dollars and then buy bonds, and then they can use that revenue to pay off existing bondholders. I mean, they might need to, to fudge the statutes and whatnot, but certainly there's nothing constraining them from doing that. And the, the typical household doesn't have that privilege right now. So that's the sense in which I'm saying I agree with them. Where I disagree is MMT proponents certainly lead you to believe that that insight, that that description of the world has policy relevance, that it means when we're worrying about how are we going to deal with the entitlement crisis, how are we going to pay for Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security when we have all these unfunded lie, oh boy, and what are we going to do in the military, that people worried about that stuff, listening to the MMT camp, you would think that that's all silly because, hey, don't worry, we just need to print money. And so what I'm saying is there is where I strongly disagree. I think the average MMT proponent thinks there's some wiggle room. They agree that, yeah, if we just helicopter dropped a billion dollars in cash to every household in America, it's not that we would all be billionaires. 
it's just prices would go through the roof and we wouldn't be any better off. I think most of them would agree with that statement, but yet they think there's a middle ground whereby if the government just ran bigger deficits knowing we have the ability to print dollars down the road, so there's no cause for concern in terms of the the debt per se, that we could really ease the economy. And so there, that's not an accounting principle. That relies on economic theories to say what is the for example, the optimal amount of dollars to create next period and so forth. So if the, the MMT people, I think, flip back and forth, they think they're relying on truisms from accounting definitions, but then they're actually relying for their policy proposals on a theory of how the economy works. And there, I think they're just wrong. All right. Well, we have reached more or less the end. So now it's time for each of you to take some time to sum up or And in this way, I'm going to depart from traditional debate rules, where I think the rule is in the closing statement, you're not allowed to come out with brand new arguments that haven't been raised before. But why not, right? It's no rules around here. So anything you want to say, that's right. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) That no constraints here. So uh, I'm going to give each of you five minutes to say whatever you want to say. So Dylan, starting with you. Okay. The first thing I want to say is uh, Bob brought up something that was a massive concern for me as well when I first bumped into MMT. And I see no mmt discussing this, except for me and my friend. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, is that if taxation, if MMTers are saying taxation is what gives money value, are you trying to tell me that a society can't figure out a currency system without pointing guns at people? And this, this, this was exactly my question. And th- this is kind of why, what, when I learned about it, my first reaction is very much discomfort because I felt like I was giving credence to statism. And my friend Nima Majur is the one who actually came up with this idea. And as far as I know, me and him are the only two people talking about it, is that the somehow, if we want to make a private currency that, that isn't based on the people pointing guns at each other, There has to be a way that the currency creates its own demand, that the issue of the currency creates its own demand. And he pointed this out with Bitcoin. And this isn't a full argument. Just just listen to how this breaks down and I'll, I'll move on to why I think it becomes a full argument is that the reason Bitcoin is valuable is because it mimics the taxation of government making its fiat money valuable. Bitcoin miners in, are, are the only way for you to get access to the blockchain. They're, they're the one that, ones that put stuff into the ledger and, and keep track of things. And the only way they will do that for you is if you give them Bitcoin. They only accept Bitcoin in order for that to happen. So his argument thus is that Bitcoin is driving its own value by this, this access to the blockchain. Now, my response to that is, Sounds great, but what's the value of this blockchain? I mean, I understand it's cool technology, but I'm, I'm not like jumping up every morning being like, oh man, I can't wait to do X because I have access to the blockchain. Well, personally, I think there's one cryptocurrency that's out right now. It's called Steam. Um, uh, it's, it's used at Steemit and it's used at DTube, which is authentically beginning to mimic the uh, value creation, or not value creation, but the, the the reason that the coin is valued in the first place, because the Steam is used to give you uh, better media presence, both on Steam and DTube. DTube is supposed to be a replacement for YouTube, and um, 
Uh, Steam it is a place. It, it's not quite a Facebook replacement, but it's a place you can you can make media where theoretically you can't get censored. And so the Steam token is a way to influence your power within those networks. And I've got a bunch of different different cryptocurrencies, and the only one that I'm holding that simply isn't speculative is Steam because I'm like, hey, I want this because it gives me value in this network. And the way it gets the, the way that the circle is completed is the fact that um, if I want to promote, say, an article or a video, I can literally spend my Steam out of existence. It just disappears and get my service, which is, you know, make make my media more prominent within the, within the network. Now, personally, I don't think media is, is enough for us to create a a system where or uh, it's enough to create a currency where we're all going to use it in our daily life and it's going to be stable. I don't think that's the case, but I think we're seeing signs that the cryptocurrency world is starting to figure out how a currency works because it's starting to mimic taxation and and why that gives fiat money value. And again, and I don't think the Steemit creators know this. I think they stumbled on it by accident. So, um, I, I want first want to say that Bob brings up a brilliant point that I don't think any MMTers are addressing except for me and Nima, that if taxes are what give money value, then how are you going to give money value without taxes if we want Ancapistan? Excellent question. I, I love talking about it. Um, the other one other thing I want to say is that uh, Bob and I clearly have a disagreement on the historical nature of money. Like whether there was a money that people came and taxed or the tax came first and that that's what created money. I would say if we look to Sumer, uh, the evidence really points to that there's a credit based system going on with the people and between each other and with the government. And you really don't start start seeing gold coins until you get to like to the Mediterranean or gold and silver coins in the Mediterranean Greek era. So credit money is way older than um, commodity money. And on top of that, I would also say that it was the stamp on the coin, on the gold coin, that gave it value, not the gold itself. And I I just want to end with the historical evidence backs up what I'm saying, which is every single crash, whether that was the six depressions or the one recession in United States history, was preceded by a federal government surplus. And if we look at the MMT theory of why that's the case, it completely makes sense. So... I'll I'll end on that. All right. And before we go to Bob's final statement, I'd like both of you to tell people how they can find out more about what you do. What would be a link you would direct them to? Dylan, you first. Yes. So I have a YouTube channel called the Volitional Science Network. Uh, can I give Can I give you the link to? Yeah, sure. Post on. Yeah. I, I mean, just look for Volitional Science Network. I don't I don't have a website yet. Um. Uh, I, I do stuff on on Steam it too, but I mean that, that's linked in in uh, the YouTube videos. So yeah, Volitional Science Network, and uh, particularly with MMT, I do more than MMT. Uh, is the MMT series is called MMT for Conservatives because, like I said, I wanted to be able to subtract the socialist garbage out of the MMT conversation for people. All right, and Bob, what's a link for you? Uh, for me, I I write stuff all over the place, but sort of the clearinghouse is my personal website. So that's at consultingbyrpm.com. All right. I'm going to, of course, link to both of these on the show notes page, which for this episode is tomwoods.com slash 1116. All right, Bob, the floor is yours. Okay. So I thought it was very interesting in the period where we ask each other questions. I had asked Dylan, 
suppose there's a proposal to allow Walmart to also issue dollars and they have full legal tender status. They're indistinguishable from dollars that the uh, either the Federal Reserve System or the, the Treasury, depending on how you want to classify it, gets to issue new dollars. And he said that would be horrible if they did that and he would be totally against it. Okay, so and I think also in conjunction with his other comments, we could take him to be saying if we started out in a world that were where it was just all voluntary and there were private issuers of money, and we can remain agnostic for the moment as to how that would work, and then someone came along with a proposal and said, hey, why don't we replace this system with one where there's monopoly issuers of currency that are fiat and they're backed up by men with guns, I'm guessing he would also say, no, 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 I would totally oppose that move. So in the grand scheme, we're really not that far apart, even on his own, on his own terms, that we're right now living amidst a, a series of regimes around the world that have monopoly issuance of currencies, and they rely on men with guns, and women too, let's not exclude them, pointing them at people, and, and that's part of the way the system works. And I think this is a horrible system, and I write, you know, explain how a voluntary system would work, and I think he agrees with that. So even on its own terms, we're actually pretty close. Where I think we disagree is the issue of how could money be issued privately. So, you know, I I like all the stuff he's saying about cryptocurrency, and that's fascinating. But I think he's he's getting too caught up in the appeal of his of his MMT view of history. So look at on his own terms, even no Bitcoin does not at all work the way taxation does. A much better analogy would be the Macy's and say Macy's issues gift certificates. And why would anyone want them? Well, because if you liked the stuff that you could get with a gift certificate voluntarily in a Macy's store, Bitcoin miners can't force anybody to take Bitcoins. It's only if you wanted to use the service that's tied to this thing that you would accept it in the first place. Also, what Bitcoin was explicitly modeled on was not taxation. They didn't call them IRS agents, in terms of who the miner, they called them miners. Why? Because clearly they're harking back to the gold and silver era where people would go and mine new gold or new silver. So when Dylan's asking me, without the government taxing and spending and so forth, where would new money come from? Well, in the private sector, would historically, I would say it came from gold and silver mines. And if you run the accounting, it actually is kind of mind boggling at first when you think about it. But yeah, the way you would run the accounting in terms of, uh, let's say the whole world accepted gold is the money, and you owned a mine of gold, then yeah, you would produce new money and you would spend it into existence. And it, that's the way you, that's where your revenues would come from. It's not that you would sell your product to someone else in exchange for green pieces of paper with Alexander Hamilton on them. No, you, you would actually be creating new money. Or if you prefer, money would be buried under the ground and you'd be bringing it to the surface and then selling it to a mint, perhaps, and they'd stamp it into coins and so forth. Okay, so this idea that we need to hope that maybe down the road, the private sector can invent a technology that would allow us to catch up with where coercive governments have gotten us, I just think is completely backwards and misconceives the nature of money. Okay, beyond that, I think one of his strongest points, well, let, let me tackle, I think I've got a minute and a half here. Let me tackle this notion, because I think what we're ultimately disagreeing about then is the issue of given right now the system we have, we're not going to have Ancapistan next Thursday, clearly. So given the system we have right now, what can we say about policy? And here we do have a disagreement. I think governments should be paying down debt. I mean, they could default too. That would be even better, I would say. But rather than running up bigger deficits, I think it would be better if they paid off their debt and didn't spend as much and if anything, use their incoming revenues to retire debt. He thinks that history has shown that would lead to a crash. So for one thing, I just question 
his timeline. There clearly was no large government surpluses before the 08 crash. In fact, people were flipping out that the George W. Bush administration was engaging in reckless tax cuts for the rich while they were starting a, Middle e- a war in the Middle East. All right. Now, it is true that during the 20s, there were a string of budget surpluses under Coolidge. And in the late 90s, under the Clinton administration, there were budget surpluses, at least looking you know, at the narrow cash flow accounting. And then we had, of course, the Great Depression and the uh, dot-com crash, respectively. But there, I would just say that's a mistake of correlation for causation, that it was loose Fed policy that caused the big bubbles in the 20s and the late 90s that also led to budget surpluses. And, and I think Coolidge was actually pretty responsible fiscally, so I wouldn't say that the one caused the other. And again, last point I will make here is, yes, there's an accounting tautology that says if the government runs a deficit, the private sector gains net assets. There's a sense in which that's a true statement, but think about what that means. It's just saying if, if you own bonds issued by the government, it's saying we will down the road give you money, either through printing it, in which case how is that making us wealthier in a real sense? It's just more people have more dollars, prices go up, or by taxing you and then giving the private sector that money back that we just taxed. Either way, that's not the same sense as having a real asset the way having a bond issued by a corporation would be. All right. And with that, we are going to uh, declare this complete. And I'm going to thank Dylan Moore and Bob Murphy for their time and for enlightening us here. The show notes page, once again, is tomwoods.com slash 1116. You can get links to both of these gentlemen and their work, and I hope you will, uh, in fact, do so. Thanks again to both of you very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Dylan. All right, and that is our program for today. Not going to have any banter at the end here because it's been rather a long program. So I'll just say that tomorrow we're going to be looking at the Vietnam War question again and studying the question of could the war have been won? Was it winnable? Was it inherently unwinnable? If so, what makes it inherently unwinnable? In 1975, couldn't the takeover of South Vietnam have been stopped? We're going to talk about that with Gareth Porter tomorrow, so make sure you have subscribed. You can do so at tomwoods.com slash iTunes. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.